All right, hello guys, and welcome back to the Random Birds Podcast. You're here with Haley and Amber, and we're sorry for missing last Thursday again. It's turned into a Monday episode podcast only. <laughs> this is past like three weeks. Definitely unintentional. Um, so if you if you listened to the last podcast episode, you know that we had a death in the family. Um, and so we didn't get a scheduled day for the funeral until a couple of days before. And then we had a second death on the same side of the family. So, um, we had that death and then the day after that was the funeral for the first death. Yeah. So last Thursday was the funeral. Um, it was a very emotional week. It's been crazy. My life has been like all of February and then last week has been insane. So yeah, we apologize for missing that episode. Um, and I'd like to say that we know for sure we'll be here for this Thursday, but with our track record, we really can't make that promise. We yeah. we want to be here for next Thursday because it has been a hot minute since we did a paranormal episode at this point. But um, yeah, no promises just because of how our lives have been. So if we can't do another one on Thursday, we'll just do a paranormal on Monday. Yeah. I'm sure you guys are tired of just true crime after true crime. Yeah. But yeah, we'll um. We'll make sure we, we give you your dose of ghosties. Before we continue, I would like to put a content warning here that the following podcast episode will contain depictions of violence, um, possible gore, there will be mentions of rape, um, and there is murder. Um, today we are talking about Richard Ramirez, so if you're at all familiar with that case, you know exactly what it entails, and if that is something that is potentially triggering for you, then please don't continue with this episode. This is your chance to click off. From 1984 to 1985, the city of Los Angeles was terrorized by an unknown killer coined as the Night Stalker. He would later be identified as 25-year-old El Paso native Richard Ramirez. Born on February 29, 1960 in El Paso, Texas, Richard Ramirez was the youngest of five to Mexican immigrants Julian and Mercedes Ramirez. His father, Julian, was prone to fits of anger, and he would often beat his children, including Richard. Whenever Richard Ramirez was two years old, a dresser fell on top of him, causing a head laceration that required 30 stitches. When he was five years old, he was hit by a swing at the park, and this head injury caused him to suffer from epileptic seizures stemming from the temporal lobe. Whenever Richard was 10 years old, he started smoking marijuana. And whenever he was 12, he began looking up to his older cousin, Miguel Mike Ramirez. Mike was a decorated Green Beret combat veteran, and he would often boast of his gruesome acts he did while serving in the Vietnam War. He would share Polaroid photos of his victims with Richard. And in one photo, Mike was posing with the severed head of a woman that he had raped and abused and then eventually killed. Um, Mike would also teach Ramirez some military skills, such as killing with stealth. Hmm. On May 4th, 1973, Ramirez was at Mike's house when Mike fatally shot his wife in the face during an argument. After the incident, Richard became sullen and withdrawn, and he began breaking into homes. He moved in with his older sister, Ruth, and her husband, Roberto. Roberto was a peeping Tom and would take Richard along with him on his nocturnal exploits. 
During this time, um, Richard also began using LSD and began taking an interest in Satanism. How do you think about that? Can I, um... I'm not usually one to feel sorry for a serial killer, especially one who did things as violently as Richard. But my god, this poor kid had the worst role models growing up. Like, it's a lot easier to see how he got as fucked up as he did. Right, because you have his father, who was abusive. Um, and then his cousin, who was a Vietnam vet, who bragged about the awful things he did to Vietnamese women. And even showed him pictures of their mutilated bodies. And then his sister's husband was a peeping Tom and would take this... How old is he now? Like... This is in 1973, so after 1973, he was born in 1960, so he was 13 years old. Like 13, 14 years old, this man, Roberto, is taking him out on nightly prowls to peep on women, or people. That is so fucked up. Uh, Like, like the words of Bailey Sarian, get better idols. Right. (laughs) Jesus Christ. So, going back to Mike, uh, it's now 1977. And the killer, cousin, was found not guilty of murder by reason of insanity and was released after four years in incarceration at the Texas State Mental Hospital. Not guilty by reason of insanity. There's a very thin line between not knowing what you're doing and being a violent psychopath. Right. Like, there's a very fine line, and I feel like he was on the violent psychopath who knew what he was doing, but enjoyed it. Uh, I just... I... Like, can you imagine if this man had actually been held accountable for his actions, and had Richard seen that, is it possible that he would have thought a lot harder about his future actions? knowing that it is a possibility that he would be held accountable. Maybe not, possibly not, probably not even, but I don't think that it helped that he saw the men in his life doing these things and getting away with them, which would ingrain in his brain as a child that these things are okay. And um, I've had other cases that I've read and learned about where literally these people are taught to do these things and they are told it's okay to do this as long as you get away with it. Yeah, like, I feel like Mike should have been held accountable, and maybe... I don't think it would have changed the situation too much, but I feel like it may have had an impact. Because after Mike got out of the hospital, his, his influence over Richard continued. So it only got worse. Ramirez began to meld his developing sexual fantasies with violence including forced bondage and rape. While in school, he took a job at a local Holiday Inn where he used his pass key to rob sleeping patrons. Um, His employment abruptly ended after Ramirez attempted to rape a woman in her hotel room before her husband returned to find them. Although the husband beat Ramirez senseless at the scene, criminal charges were dropped because when the couple, who lived out of state, declined to return to testify against him. I feel like if the justice system had been put into place here, Ramirez could have been stopped or 
like he could have been on the police's radar. I was gonna say before the, any killing started. At the very least, they would have an actual, like, documented history of him. You at would this think. Point. And I'm usually not one to question people who don't press charges, but I actually am interested as to what their reasoning was for not pressing these charges. Their reasoning was they were out of state and they wouldn't, they didn't want to have to travel back and forth to testify. I guess that and makes to give sense. statements. And I'm sure she didn't want to have to keep reliving that moment over and over. Yes. So like we're not victim blaming, but like I really wish that like charges had been pressed. Because then Ramirez would have had a his like a a criminal history, and he could have been on places radar for all these. This attacks. is one of those instances where I really wish that there were there were circumstances where you could press charges without having to testify. Yeah, they could yes. get her one testimony and just use that. But I mean, obviously, I'd say that there are issues even with that. But I think that in some cases like this, where witnesses or victims are either too scared or too traumatized to repeatedly testify that there needs to be something to still give them some kind of justice even if they can't be there for it right because that can then prevent another woman from having to go through the same thing exactly so after this um ramirez dropped out of high school in the ninth grade and in 1982, when he was 22 years old, he moved to California, where he settled permanently. So it would be two years before Ramirez um, started killing, or until police and we as people would know that he started killing. So on April 10th, 1984, Ramirez murdered a nine-year-old Chinese American Mei Luang in the basement of the hotel where he was living in the Tenderloin district of San Francisco. He raped and beat the girl before stabbing her to death and hanging her body from a pipe. So this is Richard's first known killing, but it wasn't identified as being connected to his crime spree until 2009 when his DNA was matched to a sample obtained at the crime scene. So this next segment, um, I'm not going to go into any more detail on the crimes and the violent offenses that he did to these people. I'm just going to give dates and names because I don't want their names to be tied to such violent acts. Like, I hate whenever victims are only known for what was done to them and who did it, and they aren't really known themselves. Right. And to be, to be honest, he did a lot of the same things over and over to all of his victims so if it happened to another it more than likely ha- happened to each of them all right so in june uh the 28th of june 1984 he attacked and killed jenny Venkow. um and then after that he took an eight-month break um he didn't kill again until march 17th 1985 he attacked Maria Hernandez and Dale Yoshi Okazaki, and Hernandez was the only one to survive the attack. And on the same day, um, he also attacked and killed Tasi Leanne Veronica Yu. On March 27, 1985, he attacked and killed Vincent and Maxine Zazara. On May 14, 1985, he attacked and killed Bill and Lillian Doy. Lillian survived the attack. On May 29, 1985, he attacked Mabel Ma Bell and Florence Nettie Lang. 
Both survived, but Bell later died of her injuries. On May 30th, 1985, he attacked Carol Kyle and her 11-year-old son. Both of them survived. On July 2nd, 1985, he attacked and killed Mary Louise Cannon. On July 5th, 1985, he attacked Whitney Bennett, who survived. On July 7th, 1985, he attacked and killed Joyce Nelson. And on the same day, he attacked Sophie Dickman, who survived. On July 20th, 1985, he attacked and killed Layla and Max on Needing. On the same day, he attacked Chanarong and Somkid Kavananath and their 8-year-old son, Somkid, and the 8-year-old son survived. On August 6th, 1985, he attacked Chris and Virginia Peterson, both survived. On August 8th, 1985, he attacked Sakina and Elias Abawath and their three-year-old son. Only Sakina and the three-year-old son survived. On August 18th, 1985, he attacked Peter and Barbara Pan. Both survived. So on August 24th, 1985, Richard Ramirez traveled to South Los Angeles in a stolen orange Toyota. That night, he arrived at the home of James Romero Jr., who had just returned from a family vacation. Romero's 13-year-old son, James, happened to be awake and heard Ramirez's footsteps outside the house. Thinking there was a prowler, James went to wake his parents, and Ramirez fled the scene. James raced outside and noted the color, make, and style of the car, and he caught a partial plate number as well. James contacted the police with this information, and he believed he had just chased away a thief. After this encounter, Ramirez broke into the house of Bill Carnes, age 30, and his fiancée, Inez Erickson, age 29. He entered the sleeping couple's bedroom and awakened Carnes when he cocked his .25 caliber handgun. He shot Carnes three times in the head before turning his attention to Erickson. Ramirez told the terrified woman that he was the Night Stalker and forced her to swear she loved Satan as he beat her with his fist and bound her with neckties from the closet. After stealing what he could find, he dragged Erickson to another room and began raping her. He then demanded cash and more jewelry and made her swear on Satan that there was no more. Before leaving the home, Ramirez told Erickson, tell, tell them the Night Stalker was here. Erickson untied herself and went to a neighbor's house to get help for her severely injured fiancé. Surgeons removed two of the bullets from his head and he survived his injuries. Erickson was able to give a detailed description of Ramirez to investigators, and they obtained a cast of Ramirez's footprints from the Romero house. The stolen car was found abandoned on August 28th, and the police were able to obtain a single fingerprint from the rearview mirror, despite Ramirez's careful eff efforts to wipe the car clean of his prints. The print was positively identified as belonging to Ramirez, who was described as a 25-year-old drifter from Texas who had a long rap sheet that included many arrests for traffic and illegal drug violations. On August 29, 1985, law enforcement decided to release a mugshot of Ramirez from a 1984 arrest for auto theft to the media, and the Night Stalker finally had a face. At the police press conference, it was announced, quote, we know who you are now, and soon everyone else will. There will be no place you can hide, end quote. 
So what do you think of that? Like he, he like he was known by police for traffic and drug violations. So I don't necessarily think that you should make a connection with drug violators and like traffic violators with necessarily murder, but if the other things in his history had been documented and actually part of his had been a part of his history then that could have tied into it as well like when you look at things like people that do these horrible things and you can't get them on the horrible things they do you get them on something else like with Al Capone they got him on tax evasion or something like that so again like there's it looks like to me there's a lot of missed opportunities here to prevent a lot of what happened yeah i feel like if that first um like assault from the hotel if that had been on his record i feel like they they could have like connected the dots a little sooner i agree i agree because um he had left some evidence at the crime scenes but because the police would tell the media or like it would get leaked to the media what they found and Ramirez would find out that they found this and so he'd get rid of any evidence that he had. On August 30th, Ramirez took a bus to Tucson, Arizona to visit his brother and he was completely unaware that he had become the lead story in every major newspaper and television news program all across California. After failing to meet with his brother, he returned to Los Angeles early on the morning of August 31st. He walked past several police officers at the bus station who were staking out the terminal in hopes of catching the killer should he attempt to flee on an outbound bus. So he was only able to get past these officers because these officers were looking for people getting on buses, not getting off. So that was just really bad timing. And like a missed opportunity like once again like if the police had been looking at everybody and not just people leaving they could have caught him here mm-hmm. <clears throat> he walked into a convenience store in east los angeles and he soon noticed that a group of elderly mexican women were identifying him as el matador which means killer and then ramirez saw his face on the front pages on the newspaper rack and he fled the store in a panic After running across the Santa Ana freeway, he attempted to carjack a woman, but was chased away by bystanders who pursued him. And then, after hopping several fences and attempting two more carjackings, he was eventually subdued by a group of residents, one of whom had struck him over the head with a metal bar. The group held Ramirez down and relentlessly beat him until the police arrived and took him into custody. So what do you think of that? Hell yeah. Fucking, Power to the people, man. Yes. I, I remember whenever I watched the documentary, I didn't know how they actually caught Richard Ramirez. I, I just had never learned that, apparently. And so when I saw in the documentary that it was literally the community itself that took this man down, I was just like, holy shit. And what's crazy is um, you hear about the bystander effect or like if something is happening, a lot of bystanders won't do anything because they don't want to get involved and I feel like if Ramirez's face hadn't been on the news, like like on the television, and people had only seen it in the newspaper, they probably would have just, like, not paid attention. But I feel like because his face was everywhere, like on the TV, that, in the papers, yeah. like, people were, like, wanted to catch this guy. 
That and I also think people were tired of being afraid to walk in their own neighborhoods. And yeah, because he caused like a, like gun sales to rise in Los Angeles. People, people were terrified. They were so scared. And they now that they had a face and they had a name, they they were fed up and they were ready to, to take back their home and to not have to walk in fear anymore. Which, like, it's a great thing, but also going on, on a slight tangent, you know, like, police will name a suspect and give a face. And then people will, like, if they find him, like, they will beat, like, like they will beat this person and they will, like, talk badly about this person. And, like, what if the police come back and say, oh, we lied or, like, we were wrong. Right. And then, like, you, you did this to an innocent person. But in this case, it was him. And I'm, I'm, I'm like, I love the story of his capture. It's amazing also because you know you see the fact that the police were literally next to him because he was getting off of a bus and they did not recognize him because they weren't looking properly sometimes i really do think the community has to take some things into their own hands because i i fear that if they had not done this then he possibly could have gotten away and done even more things than he already had yes for sure so, jury selection for the trial began on July 22nd, 1988, and in his first court appearance, Ramirez raised a hand with a pentagram drawn on it and yelled, Hail Satan, in the middle of court. On August 3rd, 1988, uh, the Los Angeles Times reported that some jail employees overheard Ramirez planning to shoot the prosecutor with a gun, which Ramirez intended to smuggle into the courtroom. Consequently, a metal detector was installed outside and intensive searches were conducted on people entering. On August 14th, the trial was interrupted because one of the jurors, Phyllis Singletary, did not arrive at the courtroom. Later that day, she was found shot to death in her apartment. The jury was terrified, wondering if Ramirez had somehow directed this event from inside his prison cell and whether or not he would reach other jurors. However, it was ultimately determined that Ramirez was not responsible for her death as she was shot and killed by her boyfriend, who later committed suicide with the same weapon in a hotel. What the fuck? Yeah. That's... Trial. Like, how... I... <laughs> My brain can't comprehend that, because that seems like it has to be connected, like... Yeah, like, you would think, but it's was, not. It's oh, a totally separate incident. That is so crazy. Hail Satan. Apparently. <laughs> so, on September 20th of 1989, Ramirez was convicted on all charges. That includes 13 counts of murder, 5 attempted murders, 11 sexual assaults, and 14 burglaries. During the penalty phase of the trial on November 7th, 1989, he was sentenced to die in California's gas chamber. He stated to reporters after the death sentences, quote, Big deal. Death always went with the territory. See you in Disneyland. End quote. Wow. <clears throat> that just goes to show, like, how, like, unremorseful he was and how much he did not care. Like, like he didn't even care about his own well-being. He was like, yeah, I knew I knew this was going get, to get to me and kill me eventually. Jesus. So, in August of 2006, he still hadn't been executed. Was sentenced to execution in... 1989 in 2006 still hadn't been executed 
Um, so he started his first round of state appeals, which, of course, ended unsuccessfully. And his convictions were upheld and the death sentence was upheld. He again tried to appeal on September 7th of 2006, um, but the California Supreme Court denied his request for a rehearing. And Ramirez had additional appeals uh, pending until the time of his death. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that you are allowed a certain number of appeals before they're allowed to go forward with anything with the death penalty. That may be it, but like, even so, like, he didn't even try to appeal until 2006. Which maybe he had to wait a certain amount of time before he could appeal. Well, it also could be maybe they were trying... They could have been using the excuse, we're going to try to find evidence that proves he didn't do these things. Yeah. And that would, of course, take such a long time, though. Yeah. It's still, you know, it's hard to make sense of a lot of this. So, um, people were fascinated by Ramirez because his killings were so sporadic and so so close together in some instances but then so spread out in others like it was so different from any other serial killer that they had seen at the time so a psychiatrist uh, michael h stone actually did a study on ramirez's brain kind of the nature versus nurture when it comes to like whenever it comes to like serial killers or like psychopaths and he determined that ramirez was a quote made psychopath as opposed to a born psychopath so he said that Ramirez's schizoid personality, schizoid personality disorder. disorder contributed to his indifference to the suffering of his victims and made him untreatable. So, like, no amount of therapy or medication, medication was going to help him, which that's... That's sad, honestly. And like I said, I hate to feel like I'm feeling sorry for a serial killer, but he was created to be this monster, and then in the end, nothing could even be done to undo... what happened yeah like he kind of had no control over what happened to him that made him into this um he also stated that ramirez was not unconscious you know with the two injuries as a child and because all this happened before like the age of six it, it it resulted in to quote later developed temporal of epilepsy aggressivity and hypersexuality end quote and can i just mention like how bizarre it is that childhood abuse can lead to like sexual deviancy or like sexual related crimes that in connection to having actual brain damage because it's very clear that he has brain damage and not everyone who is abused as a child grows up to become a violent sex offender it's just like the mix of everything had that happened to him like he had terrible male uh, role models who like kind of ingrained in him that doing all these things was okay and normal and normal um and, then and literally course, teaching him how to do it yeah like teach like give him all the tools he needed and then of course like the brain damage the childhood abuse the tr- like all that trauma as a child like just the combination of all of that and then also there is like something in your dna that can also contribute to you being more likely to be violent so like he could have also had that but yeah. like a perfect storm for lack of a better word yeah so, Ramirez died of complications due to secondary B-cell lymphoma at Marin General Hospital in Green Bay, California on June 7, 2013. 
which whenever I found out the year that he died, I connected it to the Elisa Lamb, and I was like, that's probably where people got that's that where rumor that, from. It literally came from one article where this one guy said that they were connected, and and like this one guy there. probably said that it was connected because Ramirez died in 2013, and Elisa Lamb was found and died in 2013. So yeah, these two huge things happen in the same city. And you're just like, oh, they have to be connected. They have to be connected, right. you know, because pe- people don't want to believe that horrible things happen that aren't related. Sometimes I think, yeah, that's the case. I, I do have to say the fact that um, a lot of this kind of centered around the Cecil, whether he even actually stayed there or not, that's up for debate. But well, here's the thing. A lot of his killings and stuff um, happened in East L.A., and we looked, we've looked at a map, and East L.A. and Skid Row aren't that close. Right. We had to look at a map, because yeah. we are from a very small town. <laughs> we don't usually have to to think about these things. Right. But, but yeah, like, we checked a map. They're not near each other, so he more than likely probably wasn't there ever. There's nothing to confirm that, so. So, um, it said that he had been affected by quote, chronic substance abuse and chronic hepatitis C viral infection on top of the B-cell lymphoma. And if you don't know, B-cell lymphoma is a blood cancer. Um, so, at 53 years old, he had been on death row for more than 23 years. And by some estimates, um, it said that he would have been in his early 70s before his execution was ever carried out. Which is crazy because there's some people that literally they threw them in there and automatically started like, the process for like Ted Bundy? his death. Ted Bundy, they wasted no time. Yeah. Which makes you wonder why he was treated differently. I think more so they wanted to study him mm-hmm. because he was a more so nurtured psychopath killer versus a natured one like Ted who seemed to just, it was just him. So oh. I, I, I have to wonder, did they prolong it because they wanted to study him as much as they could? Well, here it says that it's that they estimated it due to California's lengthy appeals process. So, like, his appeals just took so long to carry out. Like, we saw, like, in 1989, and then his first appeal was 2006. Yeah, yeah like I said, they, I think you do have to go through... If the person wants to appeal, you have to allow them to do so many re- appeals before you can even start that process. Was Ted Bundy persecuted in California? I don't remember. I don't know. That's a good question. Because that could be a factor in, like, why Ted Bundy was, like, thrown in, like, executed, like, fairly quickly. And it also was a different years. time period. Um, maybe not really. Like, ten years. Oh, yeah, you're right. I don't know why. I feel like it's, like, a whole different era. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's kind of like, I think people forget, like me, that a lot of these serial killers were around, like, pretty much at the same time. It was, like, one after the other, if not at, at the same time. Let us know if you if you want us to talk about this. This might be more of like a, like a live stream kind of conversation, but like, can we just talk about the fact that so many serial killers were running rampant in the sixties to eighties? Yeah, like that's actually insane. Yeah, which like there could be a lot of serial killers running around nowadays, and they're just better at hiding it, or the police are better at hiding it. Yeah, but like, it's just it's so it's bizarre. Interesting. Which it could be a government cover-up for other things they were doing. We can go into whole tangent yeah. about that. But, um, That's a paranormal episode kind of topic. Because yeah. <laughs> we do also want to cover conspiracy theories there. But yeah, this was a very fucked up person. 
that they themselves also went through fucked up shit when they were like whenever he was a kid. But again, it's not an excuse, but it's it's nice to see like why and how he got to where he was. It's a factor. You ha- and it's something you have to take into account and into consideration when you are judging a person. Right. You can still condemn something that they did but also understand how that person got to that point. And I don't think it's a totally terrible thing to have sympathy. Have like some kind of like not okay, not sympathy, but like empathy for um people like this. Because like I don't know. I just don't. That's a. It's a big. Struggle. It's a very touchy. It's hard fine to. Line. It's hard to know when. When it's appropriate, I guess, by like society standard standards, for when you can feel sorry for somebody like this. It's. And it's not so much that I feel sorry for him. It's just that, he got like dealt a bad hand in life. And so but he, then he also dealt bad hands to everybody else. I mean, so. yes. I mean, he gave what he got, which is how the universe works. But again, like, not everybody who goes through what he exactly. went through probably would have turned out the way that he did. It's, right. It does come down to a person making a choice, a person choosing to accept what's happened to them versus using what happened to them as an excuse. Right. Well, let us know what you guys think. Do you do you feel sorry for Richard? Do you not feel sorry for Richard? Do you really think that it was more so nurture versus nature when it came to how he came to be? Um, I'm very interested to see what other people have to say about that. Yeah, me too. That. Because like, it's not like I feel sorry for him, but like I am really good at seeing both sides of the coin whenever it comes to like a situation. So, like, I can see where other people are coming from, which isn't a good thing whenever it comes to, ser- to serial killers, because if people think I'm sympathizing right. when I'm not. I think I, th- I think a better way to describe it is I feel sorry for the person that he could have been. Yes. that's Not, oh, not for the person that he is, oh but the person that he could have been and for the child that had to go through that. Yes, that's exactly it. You put it perfectly. I don't feel sorry for the actual serial killer, Richard. I feel sorry for... The child, Richard, yeah, had no control over what was happening to him. Exactly. All right. I think that's a good place to put it. Yeah. I think that's it. a good place to stop for today. Um, hopefully, we will be back Thursday with a paranormal episode. Um, hopefully, we'll do our first live stream soon. soon. <laughs> yeah, um, we still have to do that as well. Um, let us know what you guys want to see more of. Are there other cases you want us to cover other topics you want us to cover as well as what would you like to see us do in a live stream we have games lined up to play um in a we couple of topics, topics um but anything you guys want to hear or see let us know and we'll we'll see if we can work it in yeah because it is for you guys after all <laughs> all right yeah. i hope you guys have a good day do some self-care if you haven't yes it's very important all right. Thank you guys so much for listening. We'll see you, hopefully, see you guys Thursday. And, uh... Yeah. Bye. Bye.